0: If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress
1: slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this on Monday, September 23rd. Lot of news, Drew. The trailer for Frozen 2 dropped on Good Morning America. I'm assuming you weren't actually up early enough to catch that.
2: No, no, but thankfully it was online almost immediately afterwards. So I, I woke up, I watched the trailer in bed. It was it was lovely.
1: Any thoughts
2: I think it looks great. I mean, as you know, I've seen a lot of the movie so far, and I can't talk about what I've seen um, so far. But I can talk about what's in the trailer. Mm-hmm. So I, I was really impressed. I loved, you know, seeing like the the kind of giant trolls, mm-hmm. the uh, water creature, that salamander that looks very cute. Uh, did you see Josh Gad was talking about that salamander <laughs> earlier today? He was like, "You guys have no idea." So I thought it looked really, really good. The scope is bigger. Mm-hmm. And I think that you and I will both appreciate how they're actually selling the movie that they're making, unlike last time when they were selling a movie about a <laughs> cute snowman, but ended up being about two f- sisters. Um, you know, so that that to me is really interesting, too.
1: There's an eerie parallel between the first Frozen promotional effort, the second. This is a musical. In fact, they performed, well, they did one number live on stage, and then they showed... Another clip from the film with the song, right?
2: Yes, I think I've heard. I've heard four songs from it okay. so far. Yeah. Okay,
1: but you look at this ad. Not a single song. And when you think about how inexorably, you know, at this point, "Let It Go" is attached to the original Frozen. The fact that, what? Music? There's no music in this movie. Look at them giant trolls, you know? Right. I'm not going to fault Disney on their promotional effort. You know, you just have to look at the the five or six billion dollar earners this past summer. So, but yeah, I was kind of intrigued by the no song attitude about uh, In Regard to Frozen.
2: Yeah, I think that, that moment with Olaf at the end of the trailer is actually from his musical number. So that's oh. that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Okay. But no music, just him no kind music. of running around. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, okay. Well, now, speaking of which, this morning, in addition to Frozen 2 being promoted, you know, again, they're, they're debuting that on Good Morning America. What was interesting, in the half hour before that, they had Bob Iger on. Uh, Robin Roberts sat down with him to do promotion for. Right of a Lifetime, which is, of course, Bob's memoir, The Lessons Learned for 15 Years as the CEO of the Walt Disney Company. And what kind of intrigued me, Drew, was the story that Bob was using to sort of sell the book. It talked about the time when Disney and Pixar were, were really on the outs. And Iger becomes CEO of the Walt Disney Company in September of 2005. The very first thing he does is that he begins this full court press on Steve Jobs in regard to Pixar. The Jobs had announced in January of 2004 that he was ending talks with Disney about extending their production and distribution deal. So they make the deal. And it's it's January of 2006. It's literally an hour before they're going to announce the deal to the world. In fact, he also, he threw away this great detail about the announcement, how they waited till one o'clock West Coast time because they wanted to wait till the stock exchange had closed for the day. Right. Well, that was reportedly because if there was a negative reaction to Disney paying $7.4 billion for Pixar, that you know the PR flax of the company would have 12 hours or so to sort of spin the story so that by the time the stock exchange opened again at 9.30 the following morning, they, they could mitigate the damage. But it's an hour before this announcement, and Steve Jobs says, hey, let's go for a walk. And so they're, they're walking around the Emeryville campus. They sit down. Steve puts his arm around Bob and says... Hey, you know the cancer that I was diagnosed with in the August of 2003 and got operated on last year, it's back. And you know it now, and my wife knows it, and that's it. I'm telling you this now because I'm about to become your your largest individual shareholder, and I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to live. I'm telling you this now so you can pull out of the deal if you want to. Iger sat there, and he, he's got an hour, and he can't really reach out to the Disney board, but he has to decide what to do here, and ultimately, of course, he goes forward with the deal, but Eisner had stepped away, or stepped down as chairman and CEO, but came back to petition the Disney board about, don't buy Pixar, it's a bad idea. And here he is, you know, just before they're going to announce the the thing in front of everybody in Emeryville. But yeah, he's got to decide based on this bit of news, that we go forward with that? But you were mentioning the Maureen Dowd story that ran yesterday,
2: right? Which had the the anecdote that Disney was very close to buying Twitter, which would have really cast things in an interesting light, uh, considering how how much trouble Twitter's been in in the last you know couple of mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. since the Trump uh, election, really. And I wonder if Disney would have been able to, like, kind of clean that stuff up or if it would it would, if it would have just gotten into a, a sort of quagmire with that stuff. But have you noticed that none of these reports have ever talked about how he paid $500 million for Maker Studios? <laughs> <laughs> Something yeah. that I was very intimately uh, involved with at the time that, that never seemed like a great idea but that
1: no one has brought up since. Just in the past week or so – I forget who it was who did the article about trying to determine which film in Hollywood history lost the most money. and I did uh, see that. If you work the math, it's John Carter. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: what happened like the week after John Carter opened, it was just to watch Disney move at so much speed to put John Carter behind them and completely absolve Andrew Stanton of any blame because of yeah. course they really wanted finding Nemo too. So it's like, hey look, we all took a big swing and sometimes in this business you missed. And Andrew, you get right to work on that Nemo too. You know, all is forgiven. Oh okay. speaking of Hollywood and entertainment, you caught the Emmys last night, right?
2: I did, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> if ever there was a case to be made for why broadcast television is completely irrelevant, it mm-hmm. was the Emmys, I think. But um
1: <sighs> yes. You know the opening, the hostless show, and, and to of course introduce the host. And here comes Homer Simpson's on stage, and it was a great piece of animation. I mean, he, you know, in perspective, he, he walks forward in the stage, and he he's dressed in a tux, and he does everything that a host does. You know, is they're they're doing that walk, and you know the little wave, and pointing to friends in the audience, and and then they drop a grand piano on him, and it's done. In 45 seconds, Homer is in the Emmys, and he's gone. I bring up that 45 seconds because I also, (laughs) the afternoon before the Emmys, uh, sat and watched the second set of Disenchantment, the 10 episodes of this Matt Groening adult animated comedy fantasy series that became available on Friday. And these 10 episodes are four hours and 15 minutes long and... I, I don't mean to be mean, but I got more entertainment out of the 45 seconds of Homer on stage at the Emmys than I did out of, of Disenchantment. And I, I don't take any pleasure... Ouch! Ouch! Well, I don't take any pleasure in saying that. I mean, it's it's beautifully designed. I mean, Rough Draft Studios, the same folks who worked with Matt to do Futurama. The show looks great. It's got the most spectacular voice cast, I think, in animation today. I mean, you've got John DiMaggio and Billy West and Tress McNeil and uh, Maurice LaMarche, you know, all of these great, great talents. I don't know if there's really enough meat on the bone here. I mean, do you remember the original log line for this show? was What was it? Futurama meets Game of Thrones? Right. The whole idea that, you know, for the first time ever, Granny's going to do a show with an overarching story. And I just sat there for four hours moving from episode to episode. And I, I don't get me wrong. There's a couple of individual standout ones. I think it's The, the Hunter is a Lonely Heart or, uh, you know, where it's just this, uh, actually, a, a lovely little story about King Zog falling in love with a, a selkie from the forest. It's a bear who, when she sheds her skin, is this, this beautiful woman, his perfect mate, but, you know, she can't stand being in the kingdom. There's also some, some individual story threads that I think are going to pay off in interesting ways, you know, that I was kind of intrigued by what the Queen of the Ogres had to say about Elfo. This really isn't the second season of Disenchantment. It's actually the second half of the first order. I mean, the, when right. uh, Netflix initially ordered this series back in 2017, they ordered 20 episodes, and then they made the decision that, okay, we're going to release... 10 of them in 2018, like I think it was August of last year, and then the 10 now. And then in October of last year, they announced that, okay, we're going to order another 20 episodes, and those are going to air in 2020 and 2021. And hell, with the original Simpsons, it wasn't till like, season three that they basically made Homer the central character, right? Right. Like, you know, so... I, I still want to look at the disenchantment going forward. I want to see if, if you know, with the second set of shows after done doing this set, uh, if they can figure a better way into the story. You can't fault the ambition of this thing. I mean, in the first two episodes of this, this show, they literally take you from the heights of heaven to the depths of hell. and It's great, great design and some funny gags, but it just... In between is some very long slog with, you know, and I'm not even sure if Princess Tia Beanie, being the central character of the show, is strong enough to carry it. Wow. get me wrong; It has an interesting plot twist, a, 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 a crazily designed cliffhanger that, you know, it has some great design. Three hours in, it was like, all right, I got to get up. I got to walk around. I'm falling asleep. In fact, I had to go back and circle back on uh, two of the episodes because I had, you know, I woke up and I had literally dozed through them, you know, so I had to watch them again to, to, to make sure. Speaking of which, though, in the episode called The Electric Princess, there is supposedly a blink and you miss it cameo by Fry, Bender, and Professor Farnsworth from Futurama. The idea is that in this episode, Bean travels to a steampunk world. And supposedly in this, there's this scene where you actually see that a trio of characters from Futurama travel in the same vehicle from uh, an episode from season six of the show, the late Philip J. Fry. And I have gone through this thing multiple times at th- th- this point and I it's its a blink and you miss it situation Drew and I, I'm clearly blinking at the wrong time so if anybody sees these can they please let me know
2: I'm gonna do it I'm gonna find a that's my that's my commitment to the show and oh. that's my commitment to you Jim so you what know
1: what guy okay now, <laughs> now speaking of animation for stuff you subscribe to we talked a little bit about boondocks coming back that there had been a rumor but now we have a confirmation
2: yeah well it was confirmed i think last week that there are going to be two new seasons that are going to be coming to the hbo max um platform which is uh the warner brothers uh direct to consumer platform um which is kind of uh Interesting that it's not actually coming back to Cartoon Network or Adult Swim, but will actually be ordered for this new sort of in-home service, which is which is interesting, I thought.
1: On the other hand, uh, we have Primal, the Gennady-Tartakovsky thing, which is dropping on Adult Swim next month, right?
2: Yes. I think it's October 4th or something, I want to say. Yeah.
1: Okay. But I needed a palate cleanser after disenchantment and you had talked about how great hotel transylvania summer vacation was so i started watching that and oh my god you were dead on the money i mean it's just wonderful animation great design and again it's the third film of the series but kennedy is going in the opposite direction he's pushing everything further farther funnier now, Primal's an entirely different paint set, though. I mean, so yes. what was
2: that like? It's really brutal. I mean, the, the subtitle for the series is, is Tales of Savagery. Mm-hmm. And I think that your appetite for the series will probably be established in the first few minutes when the caveman character, who's only referred to as Spear in the mm-hmm. credits, his entire family is eaten very graphically by some dinosaurs. And that mm-hmm. this is including his two infant children. Um, So that kind of sets him on a quest of revenge. And then he finds this other dinosaur whose children have been killed by other more menacing dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of like having both gone through this loss, they kind of team up together Mm -hmm. and they're they go off on their adventures. It's uh, four episodes long. All told, it's about uh, two hours. Yeah, there's no dialogue in the entire show. It's wow. just visuals and music, mm-hmm. and it was it was pretty incredible. It's one of my favorite animated things I've seen this year, and truly a distillation of what makes Kennedy so good, mm-hmm. and his commitment to action, to the geography of that action, to motion, to character without dialogue. I mean, it, it it's it's an amazing feat. It's very violent. Mm-hmm. But it is a total blast. I mean, I can't wait to watch it again when it when it airs in October.
1: All right, that comes highly recommended then. Okay. So okay, and speaking of, you know, announcements from last week or thereabouts, so now we have a, a Funko film, which yes. caught my attention because of the people who are attached to it. And I have been waiting for a new Mark Dindle movie since Chicken Little?
2: Yeah. That, must, that was his last one. God, yeah. it's it's interesting to think that that is even a Mark Dindal movie because <laughs> it is just so, so compromised all over the place, but yeah.
1: If you treat Chicken Little like a buffet, there are great individual chunks. There are great individual set pieces. I don't know if it necessarily hangs together as an actual movie. On the other hand, I'm willing to sit down and watch that movie every time it's on just for the pairing of Gary Marshall's voice with- Mark Ranieri? Nick Guarneri, yeah. yes. I mean, it's just, it's such wonderful, subtle work. I mean, there are vast, annoying stretches of that movie, but, you know, there's some wonderful little set pieces. And more to the point, if you look at Mark's filmography between The Emperor's New Groover, Cats Don't Dance. Mm-hmm. And then Teddy Newton is also associated with this project, so.
2: Yeah, he's working on the story. I, it's tough out there to get a job, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it, it's really interesting that, that that these people are working on this project, which mm. seems so bereft of creative purpose, let's say.
1: As long as we're talking about bereft projects here, you and I both got the press release and take a look at this clip. And oh my God, take a look at the Paramount Animation logo. Yes. Given the Paramount animated films that have made it through the pipeline so far if this is a triage situation why exactly are you concentrating on the logo project instead of the movies
2: yeah well did you see the real fx made that logo um okay i don't know it's weird that paramount hasn't actually set up a um an animation studio Mm -hmm. they're just contracting You know, we got some news going along with that about a new animated project, which I'm sure both of us have heard about, called Rumble, Mm -hmm. which is like a monster wrestling Mm -hmm. sort of scenario. But they have gotten the WWE studios to sign on Mm -hmm. to it. Did you see this? Yeah. That there will be veteran WWE superstars Becky Lynch and Roman Reigns, in addition to Tony Danza, Ben Schwartz, Will Arnett, Terry Crews, and Geraldine Viswathathon, this Viswanathon. This so, yeah, something to look forward to there. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like Space Jam, but with wrestling. But,
1: you know, uh, that's cool. Monster Trucks still rattles around in my head. And, you know, the fact that monster wrestlers, and it's just sort of like, did you really have to go back to that well?
2: Well, did you see that Dean Dubois uh, announcement that I sent through about him tackling the Micronauts movie for Paramount, live action?
1: Uh, well, okay. I'm blanking his name from Laika, the gentleman who directed... Oh, Travis uh, Knight. Yeah. And there's kind of a tradition going all the way back to Frank Tashlin that guys who work in animation can sometimes really be great live action directors. So Micronauts, mm, kind of a problematic thing maybe to bring to the big screen. But on the end, it's Dean Dubois. That's who delivered, I want to say, one and three quarters, one and a half good movies with the uh, How to Train Your Dragon trilogy. So, yes, you know, I'll, I'll yes. go. I'll buy a ticket. But wanted to ask if you had seen any of the trailers, uh, the, the new set of trailers for Abominable.
2: Well, I've seen the movie. So, okay. So, you know, yeah.
1: The new logo for the film, you have DreamWorks, I want to say. Up to the right, but on the bottom of the logo, they actually mention Pearl Studios. Yeah. If you think back to the the original Pixar deal extension, when Disney had the three-picture deal with Pixar, and then in November of 1995, Toy Story comes out, it's a monster hit, and suddenly Disney wants to extend the deal, Jobs very cleverly made a term of that deal extension that from that point forward the Pixar name would be as prominently featured in all of the advertising for the film as the Disney name. I was looking at that and I mean again, I, I love the look of, of abominable I'm, you know very much looking forward to when the film comes out this Friday. but I just I, it was like oh cool somebody cut a great deal you know the, here's the pearl name. You know, it's not DreamWorks, you know, I mean, you and I know that Pearl did all of the work on this thing, but the fact that it's there in the advertising, I think, is kind of huge.
2: Yeah, I mean, the movie opens with the DreamWorks logo and then immediately after the Pearl logo, which is just as long and just given just as much of a, you know, fanfare. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's um, they're making no bones about it. I think part of it is because Pearl helped so much in getting the movie into Chinese theaters that cannot be overlooked no, 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 no. the fact that it was a Chinese co-production meant that it automatically had this sort of entry point into the Chinese market so I think that's a big big thing
1: too I agree I agree we'll tell you what folks when we get back from this commercial break we're going to do a deeper dive on Abominable because uh, Drew was lucky enough to sit down with, with the director Joe Colton. and we'll get at that in just a moment Unlike Frozen Two, Drew has seen Abominable and can talk about it. Yes. What are our thoughts about uh, the DreamWorks slash Pearl Animation Studios production?
2: I, I liked it. I just wish—I mean, it's a very beautiful movie. It's one of the more beautiful movies I think that that DreamWorks has done recently. Mm. But I just wish that they had spent more time on the character de- development and the villain. That mm. uh, you know, it's it's nice that they that it looks so good, but I would have loved a little bit more depth when it comes mm. to those two.
1: You were talking about how the villain was almost borrowing a page from Up?
2: Yes. The villain yeah. is very similar to Up. This new villain, who is voiced by Eddie Izard, mm-hmm. was disgraced at a younger age because he said that he saw the Abominable Snowman and um, has spent the rest of his life trying to capture the Abominable Snowman. Mm-hmm. So. It's very similar to Months in Up, except mm-hmm. that uh, he actually catches the Abominable Snowman, and that's where our adventure begins in mm-hmm. Abominable.
1: When you sat down with Jill to talk about this movie, you start with the cityscape, this very involved cityscape. And, and as you go along, there is more and more natural environments. This is really a, a road picture, but at the same time it has... These wonderful fantasy elements where Everest, it, it, that's what the the Yeti characters uh, yes, they call is it. Yes, that is what right?
2: it, the Yeti is called, and that's what the name of the movie was for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Now it's abominable, but yeah. Well. Things change.
1: Yeah, there you go. Thank, uh, thank you, Focus <laughs> Group. So, uh, you know, I, I loved, for example, the, the, they're using it a lot in the ads of them soaring through the clouds, and you see the fish. Formed out of cloud vapor that are sort of swimming up the waterfall and that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, the, the Yeti has some kind of supernatural powers mm-hmm. um, that he employs very strategically. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'll get to see all sorts of things there. I don't want to give everything away, but yes, the, the cloud koi uh, mm-hmm. fish is just one of many kind of like supernatural outbursts that this character has.
1: So mm-hmm. it's pretty cool. What did Jill see as her chief challenge with this?
2: Well, I mean, I got to talk to her about the fact that she was on the movie and then she was off the movie and then she came back to the movie and had a co-director who was on the movie when she was off the movie. And so what that kind of entailed and, and how much of this finished product ended up being the movie that she initially set out to make so many years ago. I was actually looking through your your resume earlier today and there was one thing that I had to ask you about before we get started on abominable right. stuff, the uh, industrial light and magic aided Curious George movie that Brad Bird was working on. What, what can <laughs> yes, you tell I me about that? that yeah, what what was it? What was your take on it?
0: So I worked at ILM for about two and a half years, and they hired me to help them start an animation division of all crazy things, and so help teach them how to develop movies and get kind of their first one off the ground, if we could. And so Curious George was was one of the ones that they, that it was a partnership between ILM and Universal, and Universal really wanted to do a Curious George movie because they wanted Curious George to kind of become their Mickey Mouse at the park. Oh, um, okay. Significant, and, and they also wanted it to be a big CG feature, so it was going to be ILM's first big CG feature, um, and they wanted it to, you know, not... Few Too Young and Be For Adults too. so they hired Mike McCullers who had just finished writing Austin Powers um, and myself to kind of develop this movie so Mike and I had a bungalow on the Universal lot and we developed this whole movie together and then the after about a year or so, the Universal was partnering with Imagine Entertainment, and there was a decision made to make it not CG, but to make it a 2D movie. And so, of course, you know, my whole world was CG. So I left the project, and I believe Mike did too. And then it went to Universal eventually became the 2D movie that it is.
2: Wow. Okay. Well,
0: I know. Crazy, right? Yeah, it's nuts. And, and when I got the scripts for that movie, they gave me a stack of about 20 scripts. And I went through all of them, and I could not believe that Brad had written one of the scripts. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good friend of mine. It was pretty ironic. Right. Was his script good? At least was I hope that was probably the best. It was his scripts are always good. He, he annoys me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was looking at who He's they really smart with um plot and and just weaving the puzzle together. He's so great at that.
2: Well, we'll talk abominable now. I can I can tell there are publicists in the room that are probably giving me the stick But you you had developed Abominable for a long time and then you had sort of left the project and come back. And I was wondering, is this sort of finished movie what you had initially uh, sort of developed or does this incorporate ideas from when you weren't on the project? And what was that sort of adventure like for you?
0: Well, the initial story and the whole through line of the story and the Yeti's uh, ability to control nature and the journey of it all Starting with Yi, all of that is the, is the, the original story. Um, and, and even the even the emotional you know plot line is is all um, was always in the movie. The things that I adopted along the way was the characters of Jin and Peng actually were added slightly later um, in the movie. And I have to say that addition um, it, you know, I got to create their characters and their personalities but that that was such a significant um great change to the movie that really gave it some depth and gave gave it a unique kind of spin to have more of like a stand by me journey with these mm-hmm. all these kids kind of coming of age together and uh it really gave also when whenever leaves at the end of the movie and he has really spent some significant time healing it allowed her to go back home with people that were on this kind of secret journey with her. Um, And these, these two characters, Pang and Jin, that not only does he reconnect with her own family, but they almost get added as part of her family. Mm-hmm. And so that, scene of family that was working through the whole movie just got even more rich when you can say like you know family is is not just your nuclear family unit it can include friends anyone who's there to support you can become part of your significant family and i think that's a really important theme in the movie
2: well speaking of family this movie is pretty neat in that you got to work with this this other studio, Pearl, which was at the time, when you started was probably still DreamWorks Oriental, right?
0: Yes, okay. it was. Um,
2: what was that, like, from a sort of production pipeline standpoint, what was that experience like for
0: you? It was really fantastic because I have to say, as a Western director tackling a movie that is set in China with an all-modern Chinese cast of kids that we have, it can be terrifying that you're going to do something that really shows (laughs) that you're a Western student that does really understand the Chinese culture. And so, partnering with Pearl, whose studio is located in Shanghai, and we had a big group of artists there working on the movie as well. It really helped us keep this movie authentic. I mean, they one of their most significant roles, I think, they designed the whole city that's based on Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And um, down to the food carts and the scooters and just what the inside of that apartment looked like, that's a typical Shanghais apartment and the rooftop. And even down to kind of uh, cultural etiquette, like when we have the, the dinner table, um, scene at the end and who sits down first and can you hold chopsticks and a pork bun at the same time? Like, you know, mm-hmm.
1: just
0: all these details, um, that really create such a rich and wonderful world and really showcase uh, like a modern Chinese city and landscape and all these kinds of things. They're, they were so, uh, it, we couldn't have done this movie without them and so the back and forth you know we worked with them every day you know sometimes the time change would get in the way a teeny bit but Pearl Studios Chief Creative Officer Pamela Chow was a significant voice as well as so our our Chief Creative Officer, is, it, is Margie our Chief Creative Officer? Margie is the President so Margie Cohen um, is the President of DreamWorks and every, every week usually once or twice a week, we would have check-ins and it wouldn't be just with Margie, it would be with Margie and Palin always. So I felt like it was kind of one studio working together. Uh-huh. So it was great. Like I said, I I think that it would be, it would have been difficult doing this movie without that ability to constantly reference things that would keep this movie super authentic to China. The fact that it was pro- that this
2: was a um, Chinese co-production, which during the long lead day, Suzanne sort of talked to us about a little some of those things. But I wanted to know from from your side what that was process was like. You know, making sure that things that the supernatural elements were good supernatural elements instead of bad supernatural. You know, things like that. Like, like how did that kind of affect your creative process as the director?
0: You know, what's crazy is that there's there are. This is weird to say, but, like, when I go about telling a story, I want to make sure that I always tell um, a universal story, a story that can relate to any culture. And so this idea that the movie is about, you know, disconnection and reconnection, that disconnected from her family, and that, you know, her scenes in the movie that when the the journey gets hard, um, never give up these are things that resonate in any culture. So I really set out to tell a universal story that could reach across kind of a global market. And these kids are such archetypal kids, you know, she's the the stubborn, like independent tomboy. Jin is the social light, popular kid. And Peng is basically the kid who's always in the moment looking for a friend. These, these uh, archetypes exist in every culture as well. And so, What was really amazing is that this is really a beautiful representation of modern-day China. However, it's a story that really reaches across cultural boundaries, I think. And the greatest thing about stories is that it makes you, when you're watching it, you're like, wow, these are Chinese kids set in modern-day China. However, they're just like me, you know, right. and it, so it almost brings us together instead of divides us. And I think that that was the goal of Pearl, and it was definitely my goal. I think the small details are what was, was difficult, you know, um, things like um, how much food to put on the table. That uh-huh. was really silly, but, um, you know, we just wanted to get those little details right. And I, I think that in some ways that was the details to make sure we were authentic, were the cultural challenges, not necessarily the story. And the, you mentioned the magic. The interesting thing is Everest's ability to control nature was a key element that I put in there. And it just so happened that they were like, this is great. This is good magic, right? right, right. So there is magic can come across as evil in China, but um, this did not. And, and I felt so grateful because I didn't, I didn't really know that magic was such an issue there. But ever spantic has never been an issue so that that was very um lucky on our parts and and uh, just really in fact it enhanced the beauty of the journey across China right <laughs> if anything it makes the country look even more gorgeous you know
2: <laughs> well so, you know you talk about this theme of, of perseverance and you are one of the few female filmmakers to write and direct a major studio animated film and you've been at at all of these studios so i was wondering what that sort of journey has been like for you you know we heard a lot of things about pixar in the wake of the sort of lasseter ousting but was that a sort of problematic culture for you and, and how did you kind of like navigate this through, not only through one studio but multiple studios and and get to make such a, a big beautiful movie like this i
0: think that the great thing was when i started um you know i I've been in this industry you know, for 29 years, and I just I loved the medium. And there were so few women, even in my my Cal Arts class. There were out of 90 people, there were four women. And um, and we all all the women who now have directed movies in this industry all were all good friends. We all know each <laughs> other. And um, what was so great is you know going into going into Pixar when it was my first movie the Toy Story one, Toy Story. To Bugs Life Monsters Inc. Those are all my early movies. Um, I think what I really took away from Pixar is just the art of storytelling and telling stories that have a heart and that are about something important. You know, it's not just, uh, animating movies shouldn't just be entertainment. And, and, uh, you know, I, I just learned that so well and I saw some of my friends like Pete Docter and Andrew Stanton I remember when Andrew wrote and directed Finding Nemo um, you know he had just gone through the birth of his son Ben and was talking about being a father and how you're just scared of everything um, and that worked its way into Finding Nemo so I, I, I got to see just kind of how um, these friends of mine um, regardless of gender just how they created stories and pulled from their own life mm-hmm. um, And so that was definitely significant. And then my first movie that I got to direct was at Sony and it was pretty great. I think about, um, Penny Bingelman Cox and Sandy Ravens getting a chance to start their own animation studio at Sony and how they chose a female to direct their first movie. And, that is pretty significant, you know? Um, that was a big, bold move of theirs and I'm so happy it worked out. Um, so they really gave me my first opportunity to direct. Um, and, uh, you know, I've just been going ever since I've been, you know, doing other things along the way, helping people as a script consultant and storyteller. And I think that's where my, um, you know, I've I've kind of gone from animator to storyboard artist to designer to to, uh, director, executive producer, writer, writer, director, so it's been quite the journey. And I, I feel like the, the Tides are changing, you know, Right. that, you know, CalArts was 60% women now, and I think that will work its way into the industry. I'm very hopeful. Well, uh, okay, great. Well, yeah, I mean, I was
2: just going to say, are you sticking around DreamWorks animation now? Is that, is this sort of your home base or are you sort of open to other projects elsewhere?
0: You know what? I have no idea what I'm doing next. And I am totally a hundred percent, um, uh, honest with that. I, I have not even allowed myself to I, – I love DreamWorks, and I actually have to say Margie Cohen and Kristen Lowe are amazing to work with, and this, the universal NBC Comcast family and just what they've brought to this movie is incredible. I mean, just the marketing alone has blown me away. Um, as I'm watching people around here carry around, Stuffed Everest dolls, and I'm dying that this has even got to this place where this <laughs> creature that I thought of in my brain is now a plush toy. Um, <laughs> I've been so grateful for them. So I, I don't know what's next for me um, on any level, um, story or studio wise, but um, I, I'm looking forward to just almost putting this film out into the world before my brain stop to think about
2: anything else. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joe, thank you so much for chatting with me. This was a big thrill. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.
1: That was great fun. Thank you for sharing that, Drew. Of course, of course. And speaking of sharing, you have been, you know, if if, if folks go over to your wonderful Light Diffused podcast, podcast, uh, you've been sharing all sorts of behind-the-scenes stuff lately in regard to the making of the Mission Impossible films. In fact, you had that... Um, the amazing interview with with the gentleman who did all the effects works on the film.
2: Yes, uh, Stu Mashwitz. We we just finished up with him last weekend, and now we're starting with Todd Vaziri, mm-hmm. who is another visual effects artist who worked under John Knoll on the first and fourth movies. Mm-hmm. So ra- rarely do are there any kind of like department heads that are on more than one movie. He's one of them. He tells us a lot of stories. He tells us stories <laughs> about Star Wars and things like that. So. He, he has been working on Rise of the Resistance uh, for a long time as well. So we get oh. some stories out of him.
1: Okay. Well, all right. <laughs> that suddenly really became on my listening list. Yes. Okay. yes. All right. That one we definitely have to check out. On my side of the fence, we've got Disney Dish with Len Testo. We've got Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Zare, who was just out in Indianapolis at the uh, Indie Disney meet kind of holding down the fort while while Nancy and I were home with the plague. We also have Marvel Us Disney with Aaron Adams. And again, thank you to Aaron. He was also out at the Hamilton County Fairgrounds this past weekend uh, meeting with folks. We then also have the Universal Giant podcast with Dustin Hughes. Thank you for listening. And Drew and I will be back soon.
0: Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor.